Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples weekly sermon podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Last week we looked at chapter 22, if you were here, we looked at chapter uh, 22 and we looked at the very high value that God places on sexual purity. And he gave us this very special gift of sexual intimacy, but he set up boundaries when he said that sex was between only a husband and a wife. And we saw that it, when those boundaries were crossed, there were consequences. Among the Jews at that time, the consequences often resulted in the death of the guilty parties. Uh, a couple who were caught in adultery or a, a woman who claimed to be a virgin on her wedding night, but then ended up um, not being a virgin on her wedding night. Now, Today, we obviously aren't going to drag anybody out into the streets or the city gates to stone them um, when they cross God's sexual boundaries. But those of us who have crossed those boundaries in our past know that sexual relationships outside of marriage still come with consequences. Sexually transmitted diseases, deep emotional scars, Lingering feelings of guilt and regret, broken relationships and unexpected pregnancies are consequences of sexual encounters outside of God's plan for this gift that he gave to us. If you know what I'm talking about, you know because you've crossed God's boundaries and you have or are experiencing the consequences. But I want to remind you of what God said to Isaiah to share with the Israelites 3,000 years ago. This is written in Isaiah 61, so you look this up later if you want. But this is what it says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prisons to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes. After Jesus returned from being out in the desert for 40 days and being tempted by the devil, he went to his hometown of Nazareth. And when he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, they, as was their custom, took the scrolls and handed them to Jesus to read from. Now you understand that there was a, a passage assigned to every day. And so they would just be turned to that section and they handed those to Jesus. And he read from the passage for that day. And it was Isaiah 61, the same passage that I just read to you. And, and he read it aloud to them. You can read this in Luke chapter 4, but I'll read it now. It says that he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And it says he closed the scroll and sat down. And then he said to all of them that were gathered there, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I mean, in that moment, the room must have been like, what? When he said that, he meant that he had come to heal the brokenhearted, to open the eyes of the blind, to proclaim liberty to the captives and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. 
And although he did give some back their sight, literally, I don't recall him freeing anyone from prison. But I do read of him loosing the emotional chains of bondage and taking their ashes and giving them beauty. The woman at the well had five husbands before and was living with a man now that wasn't her husband. The woman that was dragged out in front of Jesus accused of being caught in the very act of adultery. The tax collectors and prostitutes and countless other sinners, he took their ashes and gave them beauty. And he came to do the same for you. Bring your sin, bring your shame, and lay it down at his feet, and it shall be and set you will be set from liberty from your oppressor. Now, if you're not a believer here today, your whole life is your captivity. The choices that you're making, the things you believe in, are the things keeping you from God. But God made a way in the person of Jesus Christ. And he came to open your eyes and to set you free. You need only to believe that you are a sinner in need of saving. Ask him to forgive you of your sins, to come and live in your heart today and take the hand of the one who came to save you, Jesus. And you are made new, beauty from ashes. Amen? Amen. Now, let's talk about castration. (laughs) That was just the introduction that God laid on my heart last night. Okay. Before we get started, let's pray, shall we? Let's pray. Lord, I just I do thank you for this time this morning and for your word. I thank you for the opportunity that you've given me to be able to share what you've been speaking to me about all week, Lord. So, Lord, take this time and take these words and, Lord, create something that's going to pierce our hearts, Lord, that's going to encourage us and challenge us and, and convict us and change us, Lord, as we listen today. We thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Last week, we actually ended on um, verse 30 of 22. So I just got, I've got to pick that up because, you know, I've got to do the whole, the whole counsel of the word. Not, I can't skip the uncomfortable parts. A man shall not take his father's wife nor uncover his father's bed. That seems pretty obvious to us, right? To be like, oh, don't go in and lie with your mother is what it kind of seems like. So it's like, I would never do that ever, ever, ever. Well, actually, this is most likely talking about, because it's the way it's phrased, not your own mother, for example, but your stepmother. So your mother has gone, is not in the picture. She's just not there. And your father has married another woman. Well, this presumes that after your father is out of the picture, dead, um, you are not to go in and lie with your stepmother. Now, that's a little less weird, but not really, right? Not really. It's just weird. And, and God is like saying, look, I, I really don't feel like I need to say this to you, but I'm going to just put it in one verse. Don't go in and lay with your stepmother. Um, again, to us, it doesn't feel like we really need to say that. It seems a little weird, but there's purpose. There's reason for it. One of the reasons is um, because, remember, we look at this and we, we think, you know, we try to reconcile it in our head and think, oh, well, I mean, really, what's the big deal? They're not related by blood. And, you know, maybe if there's a connection and they're even close in age, because, you know, sometimes a father would remarry to a woman much younger um, and maybe they're close in age and all that. But what you have to understand is you look at that in terms of like one stepmother and one like 
man in a union like that, but you understand that there could be, you know, you could have brothers and sisters by this woman, right? So maybe your father married another woman and then they had children. And so now you have, you have stepbrothers and sisters who are also involved. And it gets even weirder because if you have stepbrothers and sisters by this woman, and then you actually go in and, and you are, uh, and you lay with her, that's, even weirder. I mean, talk about a very awkward Thanksgiving dinner later on. That I mean, like, where do you sit, everybody? And see, really, the thing is that um, families were very close. They weren't spread out all over the country like we are nowadays. They all actually lived very close and many times in the same house. You see, what would happen is if there was a father who had sons, the son, when he got to be about marrying age, would add on a room to his father's house. So he would build onto his father's house. And then when he went and, and was married, he would bring his bride home to live with him in his house, which was actually a room built onto his father's house and so and so on and so on. And so you can understand that if there was more than one son, there would be a large family all living together all at the same time. Now, Jesus actually used this very same understanding of the father's house when he says in John chapter 14, he says, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would not have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and you know the way. And Jesus is using this understanding of families being together and a house being added onto his father's house when he talked about what he was doing in preparing heaven for those who would follow him. And so he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you that is a house that's a part of my father's house. In, 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 uh, um, in my version here, New King James, it says many mansions. And as a kid, I always just imagined, you know, a, a God building mansions all in heaven. It's just, it's just full of, of mansions. But really, it, this, the understanding of the way this works is it was like rooms or houses built onto the Father's house. And the Father's house was one big place. So, you know, when he's talking about heaven, it's not like we're going to be spread out all over the place in mansions, I don't think. Um, but probably all together is one big family in heaven. And God, uh, Jesus, when he talks about heaven and what he's going to prepare to do, he used an example that they would completely understand because this is culturally what they did is they built on one house on the other kind of a thing. And then they all lived together, which is why it would be awkward if you then went in and laid with your stepmother because you were all there. Now, what's really cool about this section here that Jesus is saying is he goes, where I go, you know, and you know the way. Well, you know what Thomas is question at that point was, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, and, and what did he say? You know what he said. I am the way. Jesus said, I am the way. Jesus said, I'm going to build a place in heaven that's a part of my father's house, and when I come back, I'm going to take you with me, and you know the way. And they said, which way is it? And he said, I'm the way. I'm the way. No man comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said, except through me. But you know what he did? He said, you know, it's not several doors that lead to my Father's house. It's one door. And it's this way, but you're welcome to come. 
The fact that there's one door should not surprise you. The fact that there is even a door is amazing. Isn't that amazing? I should have put my bookmark in. Okay. <clears throat> Chapter 23. He who is emasculated by crushing or mutilation. <laughs> he who is emasculated by crushing or mutilation shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Okay. Um, okay. Um, <laughs> um, what this is talking about is um, castration. All right. But what this, it, what most Bible scholars are saying, are looking at this and saying, and talking about emasculated by the crushing or mutilation, is the idea that their um, parts um, in in uh, in the King James version it calls it their stones in their privy member if that helps you, um, were, have been removed. Now, what most Bible scholars believe is that this wasn't a forced emasculation, but rather a process that they chose to undergo in order to be in a certain position or to worship in a pagan way. There were many pagan practices that required them to emasculate themselves in order to be a part of that pagan worship. And so what what God is saying right here is that anyone that has made that choice to emasculate themselves is not to be a part or enter into the assembly of the Lord. Now, I have to explain this phrase right here, the assembly of the Lord, because when we read that, I know that what you probably are thinking, what I'm thinking is, well, that doesn't seem right. I mean, they, what, they can't even come into the fellowship. I mean, just because they made a bad choice, they can't come into the fellowship of the Lord. And that's not what that phrase means. That phrase doesn't mean that they're, they're not allowed to come into the fellowship or what we would call the assembly of the Lord. That word or that phrase, the assembly of the Lord, is, is talking about um, the governing body of the nation of Israel. Not the getting together and the fellowshipping, but the governing body of the nation of Israel. So although he was saying um, someone who chooses to emasculate themselves in a pagan practice makes that choice and says, this is the thing that I'm going to do, and then later comes to uh, the Jewish nation and says, look, I want to be a part of what you've going on here. They're welcomed in, but they're not to be a part of the leadership or the governing body of the nation of Israel. Um, how do I know? How do I know that's true? Well, I'm going to read to you from Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 5. Just listen to this. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and holds fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that than the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. He says that anyone who has made this choice or that this has been done too, because that did happen also, isn't that they're cast out from fellowship. In fact, he says, look, I'm going to give them something that's so much better than anything they have. They're welcome to come into a relationship into the family of God. They're welcome to, but they are not to be included in the leadership or the governing of the nation. That's what God says here. Well, let's go on a little bit. One of illegitimate birth shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. And so, again, this is thought to be believed that what he's talking about is any child that was born from a union between like a, a temple prostitute, which is going to come up later. We, may not, we might not get to it today, but it's there. 
Um, a man in a, in a temple prostitute. And the, the result is a child is produced and God is saying that child or any of his descendants also are not to be in the leadership or the governing of the nation of Israel. Again, they're welcome to come in and be in the fellowship to be in relationship with God, but they're not to be a part of the leadership or the governing body. He says, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord. An Amorite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. Remember we talked about this story a little while ago. First of all, there's a couple of things. There was a, when they were coming out of Egypt and they were in the wilderness and there was a, a, a section of land that they wanted to come across, Moses reached out to them and said, will you please let us pass through your land and we will not take anything, but we'd like to buy food and water from you. And the leaders of those nations said, no, you can't do it. I think that they were afraid. There was a big, huge group of them, two or three million. They were maybe afraid of what they would do in their land. Also, they had seen them have some mighty victories over their armies. And so the leaders of these two nations said, no, we're not going to give you food. And no, you can't pass through our land. And then they went about beyond that. And Balak, who was one of the leaders of those nations, went and hired Balaam, who was a, a prophet that heard from God, to come and actually curse the nation of Israel. Remember, we talked a little bit about this. They sent people and said, look, we'll give you like a house full of silver if you will come. And, and uh, Balaam said to him, look, I, I, look, as much as I would really love a house full of silver, I can't do or speak anything that the Lord doesn't tell me to speak. And they said, please, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please. And so he did, he finally came and he got on his donkey and he started to ride off to meet them. And you remember the story He's riding his donkey and, uh, and uh, an angel with a sword appears on the road to the donkey, not to Balaam. Uh, and the donkey starts to go off and, and Balaam's like pulling him back. Uh, and then the donkey goes off this way and he like rubs up against the wall so he can't get through. And he, he pulls him in and Balaam starts beating the donkey. And he's like, come on, you stupid donkey, go straight. And God says, open the mouth of the donkey. And the donkey spoke and said, why are you beating me? And Balaam just takes it all and tries like answers him right back, which to me, I would have been off that donkey <laughs> really fast. Do you know that? I, I do know a lot of people who have read this and go, you know what, that, you know, it's all very symbolic. I mean, it, the donkey spoke by its actions because donkeys don't speak. And I'm like, um... Now, the Bible said that the donkey spoke. The Bible says that God opened up the donkey's mouth and the donkey spoke. And in fact, you can read in the book of like, I don't know, first or second Peter, where Peter says he opened up his mouth and spoke with the voice of a man, even very specifically. And so do I think that Balaam's donkey spoke with the voice of a man? Uh, yes, I do. And do I think he uh, spoke directly to Balaam? And do I think Balaam was all calm and cool and collected? I don't think so. I think he probably jumped off the donkey at first and was like, whoa. Anyway, Balaam finally gets to where Balak has him to come, and he sets him up in front of, uh, on, a, on a hilltop, looking down at the camp of the Israelites, and he says, now I want you to curse him. And Balak, Balaam reminds him, he says, look, I can't speak anything that God doesn't tell me to speak. So he says, well, I'll do it anyway. So, so Balaam, he gets up, and he's like, all right. Bless you all, Israelites. And it comes out as a blessing. He's like, oh, and, and Balak says, no, 
No, a cursing, not a blessing. So he goes, you know what? Maybe it's a location. Come over here. Come over here. Okay, now look out. And now you can see them. And he goes, now curse them. And so Balaam gets up there and he opens up his mouth and blessings come out a second time. And Balak is like, what are you doing? Do you not understand? Not blessings, curses. And so a third time he gets up and a third time he goes to curse the Israelites. And a third time, a blessing comes out. You know, as I think about that, I'm reminded of this whole thing that we just talked about, this, this uh, um, beauty for, for ashes. Ba- Balaam intended ashes, but God created blessing from it, beauty from that. Ultimately, you know, uh, Balaam says, look, I can't clearly, I cannot curse these people with my words because every time I open my mouth, uh, blessings come out. But here's what you do. This is what he says. This, this is what Balaam says to Balak. He goes, you really want to trip these people up? They'll curse themselves. Just give them the opportunity. He says, you know what you do? Just send women from your camp down into their camp to entice them. And then they'll get involved with them and they'll start having in, inappropriate relationships and they'll start worshiping your gods. And so that's what Balak does. And guess what? That's exactly what happens. You can read that in Revelation, actually. gives some insight into what Balak did and sent in. Um, and so that's why he's warning them right here. He says, these people, they did not help you when you needed help. And they tried to curse you as well. And so although they are welcome if they come in and worship me, God, they are not to be in the role of leadership or governing in this body of Israel. I do not want their influence, however deep it goes, to be affecting the people, but they are welcome to come into the family of God. And verse 5, it says, Nevertheless, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you. You know, why does God do what he does? Why does God do the things that he does? Well, here he did a good thing for the Israelites and the verse answers itself because the Lord God loves you. And that's easy when we get a blessing to be like, I'm so blessed. God loves me. I'm blessed. But what about when God corrects you? What about when God chastens you? Feeling really loved? Feeling really blessed? See, the thing is, the Bible says uh, in Hebrews, do not take lightly the discipline of the Lord and do not lose heart when he rebukes you for the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. It's great to feel blessed when you're being blessed. That's pretty cool, actually. But when you're not feeling blessed, when you're feeling rebuked, when you're feeling chastised, God says, I'm doing that because I love you. I love you. It's not always easy to grasp a hold of that, is it? It's not always easy because we we, uh, do a lot of things in our life based on how we feel. This is how I feel. I don't feel loved, therefore I'm not loved. Well, that's most likely not true. Just because you don't feel love. I once heard, uh, do you guys know Ken Graves? Ken Graves. You know, he's like the pastor up in, in uh, 
Calvary Chapel, Bangor, Maine, right? And he's like the manliest man you've ever met. He's about this tall, and his arms are about that big. And um, I'm sure he's hairy as well, although, you know, he, I've never seen him without a shirt on. But he carries his Bible in a holster on the side of his, like, and he has this deep, really deep baritone voice. And, and uh, he said he went to, uh, he travels quite a bit to speak, and he went to the airport one time, and he was going to get something to eat. And uh, he, he went up to the, um, the woman, I think it was like a Panera Bread or something, and he, he was like, what's, what's uh, arugula? <laughs> and this is what he said. The, the girl behind the counter was like, well... I feel like you either love it or you hate it. And he's like, that does, that's, not, that's not the question. I feel like I hate it or I don't. And so, you know, we don't do things out of, uh, because we feel them, right? I mean, the Bible says when it talks about love itself, it doesn't talk about love as a feeling. Love is a what? An action. Who feels love towards their enemy? And yet, isn't that what God calls us to do? Love your enemy. Well, I don't feel like I love my enemy. doesn't matter. Just do it. I don't feel that loving towards my spouse today. doesn't matter. Love them is an action, not a feeling. When you don't feel loved by God, does that mean that God isn't loving you that day? No. He may be chastening you, but it's because he loves you that he's doing that. In verse 6, it says, you shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity all of your days forever. And you shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. You remember, an Edomite are the descendants of Esau. And Esau and Jacob, who was the father of the uh, Israelite nation, they're brothers, Jacob and Esau and their brothers. And so God says, these folks, they're your brothers, you're not to abhor them. And you shall also, he goes on and says, you shall not abhor an Egyptian because you were an alien in their land. Now that, I mean, that seems a little bit weird because you're like, oh man, didn't, but didn't the Egyptians like try to chase them down and kill them at the Red Sea? And then they had to like flee across and then God closed it in on them. Yes, that's true. But for hundreds of years before that, you remember when Jacob and his family, just 70 people, came into the land of Egypt when Joseph was second in command. Egypt was a wonderful place for them. He, Egypt was, they were given the Goshen, the, the land of Goshen, which was a beautiful spot for them. They were able to grow up from 70 people to a huge nation. And that all happened because of Egypt. Egypt was very good to them for a very long time. And God says, no, you need to remember that. That's what I'm calling you to remember. So you don't abhor the Egyptians because you were an alien in their land and they treated you well for a long time. Then God said, you know what? And then you were so comfortable there that I had to mix it up a little bit and I had a plan for you. And so that's why it got uncomfortable so that you would want to leave and go out to the place that I was calling you. Otherwise, you would have just stayed in Egypt. And we know that's true because while they're walking around in the desert and they got a little bit thirsty, they're like, oh, I wish we were back in Egypt again where everything was great and wonderful and forgetting that fact that all of those people were actually slaves in bondage the entire time they were there. But God's reminding them, before all of that, when you first, when your people were first in Egypt, it was a great place for you, and I used it mightily, so do not abhor the Egyptians. He says, the children of the third generation born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. 
So he makes a way. It's not immediate. He goes, there's three generations, and then they can come in. Um, and even at that, even, even knowing that the assembly of the Lord isn't talking about the fellowship or the family of God, right? And even knowing that what they're talking about is like the, the leadership um, of the nation of Israel, we still sometimes look at that and say, it still doesn't really seem fair. Does that really seem fair? God, I mean, they're nice people. Look at them. I mean, I mean, 10 generations, when it says 10 generations, that's a way of God saying never, never, never are they to be in the leadership role or government of the assembly of God. Never. And like, I don't know, is that, that's not fair. God, is that really fair? Would it surprise you to hear me say that God is not the God of fairness? God's not the God of fairness. When we say, God, that's not fair. Now, God would never do this. But if I were God, I would say this to you. And I would say, hmm, was it fair that I had to send my son to die on a cross for your sin? Was that fair? So God wouldn't say that. I would say it. God's not the God of of fairness. How many times have you said that in your life when, when something happens and you say, God, that's not fair. That's not fair. And God says, uh, it isn't fair, but I love you. I love you so much that I do things that may, you may not understand. And he gave us his word so that we could know that although he is not a God of fairness, he is just and he is righteous and he is merciful and he is compassionate. And then to help us understand the idea of a loving God that loves us but doesn't seem fair sometimes, he gives us children so that we can understand the whole thing where you come to your children and you say, no, you cannot have cereal that is mostly sugar and red dye number five every day for breakfast. And they say, but it's not fair. And you say, but it's for your good. And you just don't understand. And then we go, oh, is that what you mean, God, when I say, but that doesn't seem fair. And God says, but I know more than you know. And I know what will be for your good and what's not for your good. God, he's not a God of fair, but he is a God of love. Now, he changes gears a little bit here. says, when the army goes out against your enemies then keep yourself from every wicked thing. Now, right now, he's talking mostly to the men because he's saying, when you leave the main camp and you go out to war among yourself, you're supposed to keep out, out away from every wicked thing. Now, guys, what is it about us that he would have to say something like this. When you go out from your wives, when you go out from your children, when you go out from your families, and you're off on your own, going off to war, keep all the wicked things out of the camp. Why is it that he has to tell us these things? Why? What is it about, guys? L listen, I do not have any desire at all to leap over a roaring campfire normally. But, but put a bunch of guys together on some kind of camping trip and give them a fire, and inevitably, they're going to start jumping over that thing. 
Why? Why do we do that? Is that it? If you know, tell me later, because I do it and I don't understand why. Why? But God says, when you get off on your own, when you get away from your family, when you get away from your wives, you need to be warned about some of these things that should not be. Um, I'm sorry, I lost my place. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> shall not be, uh, shall not, um, verse 10, if there is any, oh yeah, this is the really great verse, so thank you for reminding me. <laughs> if there is any man among you who becomes unclean by some occurrence in the night, then he shall go outside the camp, he shall not come inside the camp, but it shall be when evening comes that he shall wash himself with water, and when the sun sets, he may return to camp. In Proverbs 25, chapter 2, it says that it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings to search it out. This is your opportunity to search this out for yourselves. In Leviticus chapter 15, you can go and read all about this, and I'm just going to leave it at that. You can go and do a little homework on your own and read what it is that he's talking about here, but it fits into the general theme which I'm going to hit, so I'm not going to talk about it specifically. So you can go out and search it out for yourself. Leviticus chapter 15, verse 16, around there. But you shall have a place outside of the camp where you go out and you shall have an implement among your equipment, and when you sit down outside, you shall dig with it and turn and cover your refuse. A very simple. They're in a camp together, going off to war. God says, among other things, when you have to go to the bathroom, which everyone does, there's a book about it. As a little kid, you get to read it. Um, when you have to go to the bathroom, do not go outside of your tent and just squat and go to the bathroom or go to your neighbor's tent and squat in front of theirs or go into the center of the camp. You are supposed to go out of the camp with an implement, which means take a shovel, go outside the camp, dig a hole, go to the bathroom, cover it back up, and then come back into the camp. That's pretty basic. Uh, and yet God still needs to tell them this. He feels like, why does God need to tell them this? Well, the, the very next verse says, for the Lord walks in the midst of your camp. And so clearly God does not want to step in anything as he's walking through your camp. And so he says to go outside. <clears throat> or one of the things that he's saying is, I don't want you to do, look, he says, you're not animals. Don't become like the animals. Don't, you know, you're, you're, uh, I've brought you a long way. I've taught you a lot of things, how to deal with each other, how to live in a humane way. Don't, when you get on your own going out to battle, then let all that go and just go and squat wherever you go, wherever you walk and go to the bathroom. Remain human. Don't become this debased primate all of a sudden going wherever he goes, hang on to these things of, of civilization, go out of the camp, go to the bathroom, cover it up, come back in. I don't want to step in anything and I don't want you all to be lowered to this base primal instinct of just anywhere, anywhere it is that you feel like. That reminds me of a story. <laughs> um, this little uh, child comes to her mom one day and he sa she says, uh, Mom, where did people come from? 
And her mom says, uh, well, honey, God created Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve had children, and those children then had children, and those children had children, and so on and so on and so on. And, then, and, that, and that's how people came to be about. And she goes, oh. A couple days later, she was with her dad in the car, and she said, Dad, where did people come from? And her dad says, well, honey, long time ago, millions of years ago, there was nothing, and then it exploded into perfect order. And then that nothing that exploded into perfect order became single cell organisms. And those organisms over millions of years grew up into complex organisms that then became monkeys. And then from monkeys, man evolved. The little girl said, oh. So she went back to her mom the next day and she said, Mom, you said that God made Adam and Eve and then from Adam and Eve came all the people. But Daddy said that, that man uh, evolved from monkeys. And she goes, oh, honey, he was talking about his side of the family. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to save that for Mother's Day, but it's just fit too good right there. God is saying that when you are out and when you're on your own and when you're away from the things that are familiar to you, the things that are keeping us in line, like this, right? Right here, these things are keeping us in line. But when you're away from here, put away the things that are going to cause you to become debased and, and primary. Hold on to the things that God has already told us. And something as basic as having courtesy enough to go out of the camp in order to go to the bathroom rather than just to go, you know, three or four paces down in front of your neighbor's tent, for example. He says, for the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and give your enemies over to you. Therefore, your camp shall be holy, that he may see no unclean thing among you and turn from you. See, we've been talking about this, a theme that keeps coming up. And although none of us are out going off into battle and camping out um, in like a, 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 a battle camp, but we all have our homes that God says, what in your home is keeping you from being holy? This is a theme that keeps coming up. And it must mean that we still have to work on this. There are still things in our camp that are causing us to not be holy. See, he's saying, like, I, I want your camp to be holy. So go home and think about what is in my camp that is that I'm letting in that's causing me not to be holy. And he would say, go out and, and take it out of the camp and bury it. Get rid of it. Whatever it is, get rid of it so that you can pursue holiness. And the crazy part when I think about it is that we've got things in our life that we think, well, I can't get rid of it. It's too valuable. And God says, it doesn't matter how valuable you think it is. If it's keeping you from holiness, then it's refuse. Refuse. No better than dung. Get rid of it. What is it? I can't tell you what it is. You know, probably sitting here right now, you're thinking of something. And if you are, if something's come to mind, that's it. That's the place to start. Take it out and bury it, and get rid of it. They literally bury it if you have to take it out and to check with your HOA, see if it's, it's all right, and get rid of it. He says, you shall not give, um, you shall not give back to his master the slave who has escaped from his master to you. 
he may dwell with you in the midst of the place in which he chooses within one of your gates where it seems best to him. You shall not oppress him. Now, this, most scholars agree that what they're talking about is the slaves of foreign nations. They've been oppressed. They've been uh, in bondage. They're able to escape and come to and make their way to the camp of the Israelites and ultimately the, the, the whole place, the whole nation of Israel. And God says, if a slave makes it to you, you are not to send him back or turn him away, but you're to take him in. And also he's like, you're not either to treat them like a slave or an oppressed person. You bring them in and allow them to live wherever it is that they want to live and I love that picture. In fact, it feels like a very beautiful picture of salvation to me. Whereas we are in bondage before we've come to Christ. We're, we're in bondage. We are what the Bible would say, a slave to sin. But we are pulled from that and we are able to come to God and God welcomes us in. But it's not like he's saying, well, you know, you're a pretty bad sinner. You can, you could come in, but you know, I'm going to make you feel bad about it. I'm going to make you oppressed. I'm going to call you a slave all the time. In fact, he says, no, come in. Be freed from your bondage, as we talked about this morning. Come in and say, I know I'm a sinner. Lord, forgive me and come and live in my heart. Free me from the bondage that I live and have been living under so that I am no longer a slave to sin. And he says, now come in, and I'm not going to make you go back. In fact, I don't want you to go back. I want you to stay here, and I want you to live here among the people, and I want you to be a part of this. What an amazing picture of salvation that God gives us right there, right there. If you're here and you're not a believer, you're not a follower of Jesus, you're a slave to your sin. You're a slave. You're in bondage. But there's a way. As we talked about at the beginning, there's a way. Jesus would say this in Matthew chapter 11, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Amen. Amen. I guess we're going to stop there because there's a lot more stuff, but we've got communion today. We've got family church today. I mean, potluck. Um, so, Lord, we just thank you so much for your word today. Uh, Lord, for walking us through some, some difficult and even awkward passages, Lord. But, uh, Lord, as we go through your word, we're blessed by it. Lord, I pray that we would take it and uh, apply it as we go out. Lord, that we would cling to you. Lord, that we would realize that even though we don't feel loved sometimes, even though we feel rebuked and chastened, Lord, we know that you do it because you love us. Lord, I pray that we would uh, leave this place today thinking about what is it that is preventing our camp from being holy, and we would take it out and bury it. Lord, Lord, help us to grow in communion with each other and with you as we do celebrate communion this morning. And we thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org.